Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Are we good, Sean? Does uh, the sound good? It would. All right, that's what I meant. And how is it now? Yes, it is. All right. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager. I am increasingly, and I need to choose my words carefully. I don't wish to uh, worry people excessively. But I am increasingly of the belief that a madman is in charge of Russia. I don't believe he was always a madman. But uh, he is one now. And reports are that he sent, to the extent that we know about his family life, he sent his wife and some children to an impregnable bunker that could uh, survive a nuclear attack in Siberia, as if there will be a nuclear attack in Siberia or anywhere else in Russia. I've, I don't think I've uh, described a world leader as a madman, but I do believe he is. He's a, he's a scary human being. He's sort of a monster. And I don't know if he was always a monster. I didn't use these words in the past. But when I see... Uh, uh, I didn't think he would invade Ukraine. I fully acknowledge that. thought he'd make noise. I thought he would stop it in Crimea. And I, I really didn't. It's so obviously 100% evil. There is no moral ambiguity in this. None. Someone I deeply respect, a young person I deeply respect, was saying that it's very hard for him to know what's the truth with regard to Ukraine, Russia, etc. After all, and there's a conservative, very, very fertile mind, after all, isn't Soros against the invasion? Are we on Soros's side? Well, there's a very easy and, uh, and quick answer to that. We were on Stalin's side, and Stalin was even worse than Soros. That's saying something. Soros is vile. But we were on we were on Stalin's side in fighting Hitler. You you. You will have people on your side for whom you have contempt. That's inevitable. And and it doesn't diminish your cause to have awful people agree with you. <laughs> now, if it's a standard practice that awful people agree with you, then it's not a good sign. I will acknowledge that. But in, in these very large macro issues, it's it's inevitable. My dream is that they had enough anti-tank weapons to just put them all out. The more I learn about the invasion, the more I, I obviously 
come to understand it. And it seems that there aren't many Russians. Maybe the commanders are Russian. But there aren't many Russians in those tanks. That what he did is he uses non-Russians as fodder. Go get killed and go kill. These these people, I, I even heard there were Chechnyans, and he slaughtered Chechnya. He really slaughtered the place. He leveled it, basically, because of Chechnyan terror in Moscow. These Chechnyans want to fight for Russia like I want to fight for Russia. Or the or the others that I, other soldiers that I saw who were captured by, by the Ukrainians, these people were Asians. Russia is a gigantic country. It's one ninth of the world's surface, of the world's land surface. These people don't care about Russia, but they're conscripted and they have they have no choice. Yep. This is a monster putting his uh, his family, the reports go, in a nuclear bunker in Siberia. Who does he think is going to use nuclear weapons against him? Or is he thinking he will? So I'm thinking about this uh, this news report of Putin putting family members in a in a bunker in. Uh, that's impregnable uh, in uh, Siberia. So either he thinks that Russia will be attacked with nuclear weapons, or he intends to use them and assumes that correctly that there would be a nuclear response. Remember when well, you may not remember, some of you, this is before you were born or before you were conscious of public affairs. Ronald Reagan begged Congress to create a budget for what was dubbed Star Wars. And what it was, it was an initiative to shoot down missiles and the entire left in the country was opposed to it. They said it would be it would destabilize the balance of power between the Soviet Union and the United States. If we could shoot down their missiles, but they could not shoot down our missiles, that would be an imbalance, and that could cause a war. I never quite understood that. But they opposed it. The left opposed it. Liberals opposed it. It was astonishing to me. You mean we might be able to shoot down their missiles and you're opposed to this? Because you want to keep us vulnerable so that uh, he will be able to have mad mutual assured destruction? It was astonishing to me that people actually said that. That's why they called it Star Wars. That it was it, it's better known as Star Wars than the Strategic Defense Initiative SDI. That was the actual name. Nobody knows that. They all know it as Star Wars because that's what the left wing media dubbed it. Reagan's Star Wars. It's just fantasy. Don't you wish we had it? Uh, maybe we do. By the way, 
Maybe we do today. I hope we do. And the crackpot controls the massive nuclear weapons world. And he is a crackpot. And he and the last two years, as I reported to you earlier in the week, well, how much earlier could it be? <laughs> it's only Tuesday. <laughs> earlier in the week. That's a euphemism for yesterday. As I reported to you, I think Friday, though, uh, he uh, he has become even crazier during COVID. People who met with him, which is very few, he's been isolated for two years, had to have their fecal matter medically examined. This is a crazy man and rendered even crazier. He has no computer. He has no internet. He is completely isolated from the world. Didn't Putin tell us the other day in his rather rambling speech sitting behind a desk? He regrets the fall of the old Soviet Union, and he believes most of these countries, which never belonged, quote unquote, to Russia in the first place, whether they conquer them or not, uh, should never have been released. So he's not just looking at Ukraine. He's already taken Crimea. He's already taken a big chunk of Georgia. He's looking well beyond that, ladies and gentlemen, where even the EU has said, we could be looking at a world war here, a huge war in Europe. Ah, what does Ukraine have to do with us? What does Taiwan have to do with us? What does Iran have to do with us? What does any of it have to do with us? And our allies, what do you think they would do if we just walk away? They'd walk away from us. We'd be all alone. An ocean's not far enough to protect us anymore. What is this 15th century thinking that I'm hearing? Or even before that, you think it's the Vikings? You think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's like, why do you think they're building hypersonic missiles with nuclear warheads on them? I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. So yes, we should have poured all kinds of weaponry into Ukraine. The dunderhead in the Oval Office had an entire year to do this. He's got the same advisors that Obama did, because these are Obama people who put us in this position. 2014, those two provinces in eastern uh, Ukraine, which now Putin on his own, has claimed, okay, they're independent. He's claiming provinces in another country are independent. Why? Because he's following Hitler's strategy. What was Hitler's strategy? Well, at least early on in the Sudetenland, Hitler said the Sudetenland has always been German. There's a lot of ethnic Germans there. Many of the people there speak German. They want to be part of Germany. So he goes in and he takes the Sudetenland. And then he moves along, he moves, well, there's a lot of Germans over here, and actually, we don't care about Germans, we care about now our, our defensive lines, we can't defend ourselves while this country's over here. Same thing. Same thing. That's what's going on here. So let's take a little listen at uh, this uh, production uh, from the Today Show, Putin signals no compromise on Ukraine. Of course, there's no compromise on Ukraine. Biden's been begging them for a compromise for, for two months. Go. 
Signaling no compromise, Vladimir Putin this morning said Russia is always open to direct and honest dialogue, but that its security concerns, which he said include NATO expansion, are non-negotiable. NATO expansion, I've heard this even some of our friends on Fox. Nobody's even entertaining inviting Ukraine into NATO. Ukraine would like to be part of NATO, but none of NATO has agreed to that. And so I hear the apologists saying, well, we're provoking uh, Putin and Russia. We're provoking them? Yes, they need, they need their space. They need a space around them too. That phraseology, interestingly enough, is phraseology that Putin and his equivalent of the KGB and security group has been using. We need our space. And now it's being regurgitated on cable TV. Go ahead. Addressing Russians, he praised the country's military, saying it would continue to develop cutting-edge weapons, including evasive hypersonic missiles. The Pentagon believes Russia has already deployed them near Poland, along with the 150,000-plus troops ringing Ukraine. Mobilize. Hours before Putin spoke, Ukraine's President Zelensky mobilized his national reserves, vowing never to give in as Ukraine edges closer to an open war that threatens the stability of all of Europe. This is what it's like now to live in Ukrainian villages near pro-Russian separatists. The Ukrainian interior ministry, which posted the video, said separatist fire here killed one man. The separatists have dramatic... The separatists are a Russian army. I don't know why we play this game. They haven't take their identifying patches off, their identifying uniforms off. This is the Russian army playing the role of separatists, working with uh, guerrilla militia types that they've trained and they've funded and they've uh, provided weaponry to, attacking the homes of these Ukrainians. Go ahead. Increase their attacks over the last several days, goading the Ukrainian military to respond now that they have protection from President Putin, who yesterday extended the goalposts, saying he doesn't just recognize the independence of Russian-speaking separatists in territory they already control, but also in vast areas now firmly in the hands of the Ukrainian government including the Soviet-era industrial port city of Mariupol, home to 450,000 people. So now he just claims that industrial port, half a million Ukrainians here, that that's part of Russia's security blanket. Wow. Wow, and these Russia-phobes in our own country, or Russia kiss-assers, and these, uh, these neo-appeasers and neo-sellouts in radio and TV, just unbelievable. Go ahead. Last night, protesters gathered in this city to support their government. People here are getting nervous. Among them, Victoria, a 28-year-old musician and missionary, along with her husband and son. I can say I have my all, all of our documents with me in my backpack in case like somebody something starts. I also feel brave because I know that these people will never give up. Putin describes Ukraine as a historic part of Russia that needs to be saved from its NATO-loving puppet government. We don't feel that we have to be saved by him because we speak Russian. Do you think that he's going to stop? I'm afraid that he wants to keep going. And if he does keep going, what, is that, what does that mean for, for you, for, for the people here? It doesn't mean that it's a time of peace. It means that it's a time of sadness. It's a time of war, of death. 
And Savannah, just in the last few minutes, while that report was airing, we heard more rounds fired from the separatist areas landing in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian government said that it is now taking steps toward implementing a state of emergency. Savannah. All right, Richard Engel, right there. Thank you very much. State of emergency. The president of Ukraine is very, uh, is a very courageous young man. He's a reformer. Uh, he's being attacked because he's locked up the opposition leader. The opposition leader is one of uh, Russia's cronies. While he's putting in place uh, militia law, I will remind you that, as I did on radio, that after the first Battle of Bull Run, the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C., was in direct threat by this newly uh, created confederacy, breakaway confederacy. And Lincoln was trying to get troops to protect Washington, D.C., not just from the south, but from the north, because Maryland was a split state, really uh, half slave, half free, and half pro uh, Confederacy half against. But one of the northern cities that was mostly pro-slavery was Baltimore. And um, the Massachusetts infantry couldn't get to Washington because of violent riots where the people in Baltimore were literally attacking, brutalizing, and in some case killing uh, uh, forces that were coming down from Massachusetts. So what was Lincoln to do? What would you do? You know what Lincoln said? He sent other parts of his army to Baltimore and said, lock them up. Anybody who prevents forces from the North from coming down to protect Washington, the capital of the North, capital of the United States, were to be locked up. And he's told, well, that violates the Constitution, habeas corpus. People have a right to due process, to take them to court. He said, what am I to do? If I don't do this, there'll be no court to take them to. There'll be no city. Lock them up. Uh, was he a fascist? Was he a dictator when he did that? They were also cutting telegraph lines, so they couldn't commute, uh, communicate with forces in the North. And so he put an end to that. Congress would later come back, which they have the power to do under the Constitution, and grant him that power to suspend habeas corpus. But what was he supposed to do? Now, I'm not one who favors such things, but I certainly understand it under this circumstance, don't you? Abraham Lincoln wasn't trying to be a dictator. He's trying to save what was left of the country. They lost the states in the Deep South, including Virginia. He didn't want to lose the border states at that time, states like Kentucky and Missouri and so forth. Uh, the country was already uh, in a disastrous situation. The issue over the slaves, the issue over the Union, even the Republican Party in the North, they were fighting with each other over whether to embrace uh, the, the abolition of slavery wholeheartedly or whether to fight and sue for peace and leave the issue for slavery for another day and Lincoln's getting a thousand different pieces of advice and ultimately, of course, he decides we must keep the Union and we must end slavery. He would eventually sign the Emancipation Proclamation, which was a very, very big deal and people say that was unconstitutional. And yet he did it and it was very, very important that he did do it. 
And so I look at this situation, Ukraine, where we have people sitting on their fat asses from New York and Washington with a camera in front of their face after they've had a pound of makeup put on their nose and say, oh, this guy, uh, this, this president of Ukraine, it's not a democracy, it's a dictatorship. Look at what he's done. As opposed to Trudeau in Canada, of course. Trudeau in Canada is a dictator. He's doing things to his own people that are absolutely outrageous. He's not facing brigades of Russian troops and 500 Russian tanks. Well, Ukraine is. And if Ukraine has any hope of surviving, it's going to need a strong leader, and I think it has one. It doesn't have the weapons it needs and so forth and so on. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. Half of Russia's army is on, on the border with Ukraine now. Half of their army. And then two days ago, they invaded Ukraine, these two provinces, and the media were debating on whether or not it was an invasion. And I said then, of course it's an invasion. The Russian army had, you know, gone into southern parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. I think that'd be called an invasion, don't you folks? And then declare certain counties as not part of the United States because people there speak Russian or let's say it's Mexico and they say people there speak Spanish. Would that be an invasion? Of course it would be an invasion. Want to see more? Sign up for Levin TV. This is a disaster. The Russian military has reached the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, with fighting and heavy bombing in the city. And Vladimir Putin has urged the Ukrainian army to overthrow its government. We didn't have to have this situation unfold. The Biden administration took sanctions off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the most influential project that the Russians have. At the 2022 Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, in Orlando, I sit down with Richard Grinnell, former acting director of national intelligence and former U.S. ambassador to Germany. We discuss how the Russian invasion could have been prevented, Germany's refusal to take a hard line on Russia, and how U.S. policies have fueled a Russia-China alliance. They're not natural allies. We can create some tensions there by emphasizing what we know to be a different set of goals. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Rick Grinnell, great to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. Rick, you know, of course, you were the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Germany is playing this pretty significant role. We keep hearing about what's happening vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So... First of all, just tell me in general, how do you see this overall situation? Then let's go into like how Europe is dealing with it. You know, I've moved into the pissed off phase, to be honest, because, you know, we're called upon now to talk about, you know, oh, what would you do next? And first of all, I think if I were in charge and I could decide what's next, I would kick Joe Biden out of the White House because this is a disaster that the choices that we have left are terrible and really terrible choices. And it's a decision between the two. Uh, we shouldn't be in this position. We shouldn't be in the position of being asked, so what are you now going to do now that the Russians have invaded Ukraine? If you would have told me a year ago the Russians were going to invade Ukraine, I would have said there's no possible way. What are you talking about? This is a disaster of epic proportion. 
And so I would like to dial it back and, and look at the history here. And let's be, just be factual. So Putin took Georgia, or invaded, and that was under George W. Bush. And then we had Crimea taken under Barack Obama. And then for four years, nothing happened. And now what we see is a total invasion of Ukraine all the way into the capital of Kyiv. And I don't understand why anyone can say anything other than the creation of weakness, probably because of Afghanistan, which everybody saw. It was a epic moment for the U.S., a failure. That message to Putin, now might be a really good time to make a move on Joe Biden. And, you know, Chancellor Merkel was gone in Germany, got a new government in Germany. And uh, I just, I'm really annoyed that we're sitting here and our friends in Ukraine are having to face another night of Russian bombing. This is unacceptable. So you're saying basically it didn't have to be this way, because that's actually some of the messaging I'm hearing is like, you know, there was no way to forestall this. It did not have to be. like This is a terrible situation that has um, unfolded because Joe Biden is so weak and has messaged multiple times that he would make decisions and not think about the consequences. Let me give you an example. The Biden administration took the Houthis off the terrorist watch list. And what did we see? Just a short time later, the Houthis started sending missiles attacking the UAE. I don't even have words for that. This is a failure of epic proportion. We didn't have to have this situation unfold. The Biden administration took sanctions off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is the most influential project that the Russians have. The Trump administration had it sanctioned. It is not up and running. You don't have to say we're taking the sanctions away and we're giving a pipeline to the Europeans just because Chancellor Merkel wanted it. Now look, at the end of the day, Joe Biden maximizes consensus with the Europeans. What he wants is to be applauded by the Europeans. This is not an America first policy. This is a consensus with the Europeans policy. And what we've seen is when you say that you have to have consensus and unity with the Europeans, the Germans get to stand up and say, we're not really for swift banking sanctions. U.S. policy is being vetoed by the Germans because they just don't want something. Well, and so let's just, I'm going to quickly recap. So the Nord Stream 2, of course, is this pipeline that's delivering natural gas in massive quantity from Russia to Germany, basically bypassing these other other states and so forth. And so just briefly explain the sort of the strategic significance of this and the lifting of the sanctions So for the, for the benefit of our audience. Well, first of all, Germany is dependent upon energy from abroad because they've cut nuclear energy. After the Fukushima disaster, what they really uh, decided to do was, was to, uh, Chancellor Merkel wanted the, to outsmart the Green Party, which was calling for better energy policy, cleaner energy policy, renewables. And because the Greens were rising and she wanted to stay in power, she made a drastic move to cut nuclear energy. Well, then the same thing happened with the Greens continuing to rise on her heels and she made a 
terrible decision to say we're going to get rid of coal by 2030 in Germany. And so they put themselves in a box. And by the way, I think it's really important to remember that the American policy on Nord Stream 1 is, yes, Russian energy, Russian gas can be a part of a broad, diversified energy source, sources. And so U.S. policy is not against Nord Stream 1, but Nord Stream 2, we felt, went too far. It, it allowed the Germans and the Europeans to put themselves in a position where Russia could leverage energy against them. Now, we already know that the Russians do this. They turn energy off and on whenever they want to create leverage. And so the largest economy in Europe, the Germans, should not be in a position of being able to be leveraged by the Russians. And they currently are with this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Well, and so now in your role as with the hat or the past hat of being the ambassador to Germany, so, you know, the largest economy in Europe, how important is Germany's position to what everybody else ends up doing over there? Look, I think Americans make a mistake by pretending that Berlin and Paris are Europe, are only Europe, uh, and they speak for Europe. And uh, well, they're important players within the EU, they're not the only ones. And we should be able to talk to all of the members of the EU and get a more uh, broad and constructive agreement. But Americans, especially Joe Biden for 40 years, is trapped into this idea that, hey, let's just, you know, get sign off from, from Berlin and Paris and, and call it the EU. And we have a lot of partners. The Americans have a lot of partners in Eastern Europe, Central Europe. And we should be able to talk to them and hear from them before we just acquiesce to the Germans and the French. The Germans say we're not cutting off SWIFT. Right, which which is you know probably the most one of the most powerful financial tools for sanctions. Um, well, maybe just briefly explain the sort of the implications of that here. Well, look, uh, you know, again, the, this consensus idea that Joe Biden cares about when the Germans say we're we're not signing off on SWIFT, we don't do SWIFT sanctions, and therefore the Germans just vetoed our U.S. policy. Um, certainly the Germans and others didn't want us to deny Iran uh, swift sanction access. They, they wanted, you know, a normalized relationship with Iran. The Trump administration said, no, it's not in our policy. It's, it's not in our interest to have this policy. So we made the decision to cut Iran off the from swift banking sanctions, and it worked. The Germans didn't like it, and they tried to go around it. Matter of fact, there was EU policies constantly to try to go around it. They failed to go around it. They couldn't do it. They talked a big game about finding different ways to do it, special purpose vehicles and things, but it never happened. And so I think America has to be able to make decisions for our threats and respond to the threats that we think are priorities and not let the Europeans. Now, I'll, I'll finish this part by saying, when I was in Germany, I heard from a lot of people that they didn't feel like Iran was a threat to them like Americans feel threatened by Iran. And when you dig with them, they would say, well, look, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they're not gonna use it against Frankfurt, Munich, or Berlin.
They believe that. They believe that Iran is going to go after the United States and Israel and, you know, they don't share the same threat assessment that we do. And that's a problem. Well, they don't think that that might impact them a little bit or something, right? Uh, it's not um, a priority. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about China a little bit. So how it, you know, at the Olympics, right at the top of the Olympics, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping signing this 5,000 page agreement, you know, something clearly in the works for a while. What are, what, are, what are the implications of that with respect to what's happening now in Ukraine? Look, I think that the Biden team is so weak that they are allowing Russia and China to work together. And they, they don't, they're not natural allies. They're not two countries that have the same goals or think strategically in the same way. They certainly don't have the same styles. And so we should be able to to have as a U.S. policy um, a, a way to make sure that Russia and China are not ganging up on the West. The West is, is not doing well. The, I believe the Germans have left the Western alliance. They are absolutely for the transatlantic alliance, but they don't want the transatlantic alliance to be Western-facing. They want to be everybody's friend. They want to have a foreign policy like Switzerland. As long as they can sell cars in Beijing and Tehran and Moscow, they're going to say, let's be friends with everybody. It's why they don't want crippling sanctions. It's why they're telling Estonia, don't um, you know, arm uh, Ukraine. Um, it's a real problem, and I think that we need to call it out that the Germans have left the Western alliance. And when it comes to Russia and China, you know, there's got to be a way that we use the Western alliance to remind both sides that they're not natural uh, partners and that we can create some tensions there by emphasizing what we know to be a different uh, set of goals. But, but any thoughts on how that would might work? Or? Well, I spent eight years at the UN. And I think that we did a pretty good job of, of making sure that Russia and China didn't come together to beat up on us all the time. Look, they're, again, they're not natural allies. There are ways that we can emphasize that, uh, you know, we can work with one over the other. I mean, certainly when it comes to um, China, we know that India is a competitor. And the more we can uh, make clear that we want a better relationship with India, which I think Donald Trump did brilliantly, Modi, uh, that is going to help. That's going to be able to help um, make sure that Beijing doesn't get uh, their way. I think, you know, we, we have a problem in America because the Chinese have been able to infiltrate Hollywood, uh, academia, business, and our politicians. As acting director of national intelligence, I had to make sure that we gave defensive briefings to American politicians at the local level, the state level, and the federal level because they stumbled into a relationship with a Chinese uh, government official or somebody who worked for the intelli uh, Chinese intelligence agency, and they didn't know it. So some people are suggesting that China may take advantage of this um I guess the focus of the West on Ukraine right now, obviously there's this massive focus, to potentially make a move on Taiwan. Or others are saying it's a longer game, they really just want to see what happens and how much damage they might suffer if they were to do that. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I try not to be in the business of predicting the future. Um, I try to remember that I'm a diplomat and I want to solve problems peacefully. I don't want to get to the point where the State Department is shoved aside and the Defense Department has to come in. And so I, I think that diplomats should be talking about these issues. I think that we need to have better diplomats at the State Department in the political appointed positions to be thinking about these issues. These are serious issues and right now because of Joe Biden's disastrous Afghanistan pullout, there are a lot of countries that are beginning to look at us and, and say we're weak. You add the UAE issue of the Houthis attacking. That's another big message for the, the Middle East. Of course, everyone's talking about the Taiwan-China issue, but I think these are, are solved diplomatically, and we need to have uh, diplomats who are unapologetic about America being for America, the America first uh, strategy, I think is good for the world. And we should articulate that. Why is America first good for the world? Because when America concentrates on uh, democracy, human rights, the rule of law, we certainly benefit, but the world does too when there are our rules. And I, I think we, we need to start making better decisions about uh, what, what we do with our foreign policy and the implications for that. And I'll give you the example of the World Trade Organization. You know, 20 plus years ago, we thought if we let China into the World Trade Organization, that they would continue going down this road of reform. They would continue towards human rights, the rule of law. The idea was engagement, and I'm actually for engagement. But I'm also for trying to find a way to benchmark and measure whether engagement worked. And I think by any measure, the Chinese have gotten worse since they've been in the World Trade Organization. Human rights has gotten worse in China. The rule of law is worse. And so I'm somebody who wants to do engagement, but also wants to say our engagement didn't work. And so we should try a different strategy. No, absolutely. I just gave a speech today about, uh, which included, you know, the decoupling of trade from human rights in 1994 by Clinton, sort of tearing up this executive order he had that 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 held those together. So there wasn't this, you know, assessment that that you're kind of describing. So how important is such an assessment, uh, like for, for, the recoupling of human rights and trade, for example? Is that would that be part of a a proper policy? Look, I, I, I think that we're complicated people, we're very diverse people, and that you can't decouple anything, right? You, everything is related, and it all goes into the criteria to, to form a policy. I wouldn't decouple anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, recouple, in this case, right? right. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think President Trump didn't have to worry about coupling, decoupling, or recoupling. Okay. I think he looked at the policy and just said, look, there's a whole bunch of factors here, and let's use all those factors. Speaking of diplomacy, okay, this, it's been reported that, and I don't know if this is accurate, but it's been reported that uh, the Biden administration was attempting to influence the Chinese Communist Party to basically intervene on Russia. They were showing them intelligence that it really does look like Russia is going to be coming, going to be invading or something like this. They were trying, and these, these things fell flat. This is the reporting, at least. I don't know if it's accurate. 
What do you? Well, I just gave a speech on the the failed diplomacy in all aspects of of the Biden administration. I think that we've put forward really weak diplomats who haven't been able to make the case. It doesn't surprise me that we're failing all over. Um, the political appointees at the State Department, there's no other way to say it, but they're inept. And we've known this. I mean, you've got Wendy Sherman and Anthony Blinken. They've failed so many times, North Korea, Iran, and we keep sending the same people in. It's, it's, it's a real tragedy. I know you didn't want to talk about this. You wanted to look back. But, you know, we, here we are. We are in this situation now, right? We are where we are. Kiev for by all accounts is, you know, as we're recording today, been invaded by Russian soldiers. The Russian messaging is uh, Ukrainian military, give up your arms, don't put your people in danger anymore. Um, what, 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 what should America be doing now? I mean, again, you're, you're asking me to, to give you a, an assessment of terrible and really terrible choices. And um, I, I just, you know, I, we wouldn't be in this situation if Donald Trump were president, if we had a president who really thought about what was happening. There are implications for your decisions. When you drop sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, don't be surprised that you're empowering the Russians. Do you feel China has fueled this conflict in any way? Is that, how does that hand it? Look, as acting director of national intelligence, it's going to be impossible for the rest of my life to not ever think that the Chinese are trying to influence everything. They, they are very savvy. And I've been saying constantly, Russia's a problem, China's a crisis. Well, Rick Grinnell, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thanks for having me. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American thought leaders. So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American thought leaders. Thank you.